0: In a world full of smart devices, isn't it about time your printer got smart, too? Now, printing is smart with HP+. And the HP Smart app is how it all happens. You can print from your phone with just a tap, no matter where you are, even from your garage slash home office slash yoga studio. Huh. That is smart. HP+. Learn more about smart printing at hp.com slash smart.
1: This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. The cover of Time magazine in October 1990 was unusually artistic. A full body portrait of a man alone on a roof at night. His eyes are closed, he's playing the trumpet, and you sense that it's a soft and soulful tune. The man is Wynton Marsalis, and the headline, unlike the tune, blares out the new jazz age. The quintessential American genre was back, selling out halls and going platinum for the first time since Bebop, and according to Time, nobody was more responsible for this resurgence than Marsalis. Three years before he had started the concert series at Lincoln Center that would become jazz at Lincoln Center, the first addition to Lincoln Center since the Film Society in 1969. Marsalis is still its artistic director, He's also head of the jazz program at Juilliard, his alma mater. For an artist less brilliant than Marsalis, all these achievements might overshadow his genius as a player, but Marsalis's genius could never be overshadowed. He is, as the New Yorker called him, the most celebrated trumpeter of his generation. Just as impressive is the fact that perhaps nobody else could have marshaled the donations and the will of the city to build Rose Hall, the permanent $128 million home for jazz at Lincoln Center in the Time Warner Center on Central Park. That's where Marsalis and I sat down to talk in front of a small audience of his students and jazz at Lincoln Center donors. That silence was impressive. So we could just we jump into it. Right. What do you think is one of the things that you need to have to perform jazz? People to play with. My show's an hour long. I'm going to need longer answers to these questions. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to need you, you to elaborate. You quite, don't
2: worry. <laughs> but it's, jazz is uh, the, it's communal. So... You could, When we look at somebody like Louis Armstrong, really, really could play. And when he met the pianist Earl Hines, mm-hmm. man, they could play together. They made some great duets because when, when Pops heard Earl Hines, he said, okay, somebody really to play with. The real innovation of jazz is group improvisation. And the fact that I can, in time, we have the pressure of time, that in time I can make a decision and you'll make a decision and we will work out as we go through time how we're going to negotiate our agendas to some type of meaningful development and conclusion. As I tell my young students, I'm glad they're here. The main thing of the teaching is how do we play together? Why did you make that decision? How are you playing? Why did you go in two there? Why did you play this cross rhythm? How do you develop thematic material when you're soloing? So you ask me a question, and the longer I talk, the more difficult it is to stay on the point of that question. <laughs> and make it i thought i made it clear when we started that you went to <laughs> marsalis you can say whatever you want to say <laughs> no but but part of part of the the problem in jazz improvisation is organization of material the longer you play and uh, what makes kind of blue such a great record because we we're talking about miles davis so what if you take the horn players miles cannonball adley and john coltrane each of them develops thematic material in a different way john Coltrane's more like faulkner just comes out in waves Uh, Miles Davis is more like Hemingway, just short phrases that he will develop, boom, 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 boom. Cannonball Adderley is just like a valuable, soulful Southern preacher that's just going to hit you with heapings of gravy and sauce on your plate every time. (laughs) And when you hear the three of them play, you hear distinct personalities on the same form, and that's the allure of jazz.
1: What's a piece and you sit there and say, oh, God, this is like the double black diamond ski run. You know, this is the one, man, I got to be on it. I got to be on it. I got to be so on it.
2: (laughs) You're not going to play pieces perfectly. It's like, can I have a perfect conversation with you? I cannot misspeak a word, but doesn't mean I had a good conversation. It's the opposite of if you're a pianist, you have 475,000 notes in a concerto. How many of those notes are you going to play perfectly? You're going to miss a good 20,000 of them. And we'll, and you will have played the hell out of it. Right. And when did you first pick up a horn? Al Hurt actually gave me my first trumpet. My father was playing in Al Hurt's band in 1966 and 67. And in terms of Doc Severinsen, just to give you a sense of the history of music, I was supposed to play on a Tonight Show in 1982 or 83 in They've said, well, let's bump this guy off. He's, nobody knows who he is because they ran over or something. Said, let's bump this guy off. And Doc Severance said, oh, no, <laughs> <laughs> you're not bumping the trumpet. Put this man on. And Doc got me on the show. We have a culture, you know, trumpet players, and we know each other. We talk to each other. We talk about each other across generations, across time. The type of love that we have of our instrument, of our traditions it's, uh, it's not something that's known also about jazz musicians. That's another thing that doesn't come, come through, that an a 80-year-old person would be talking to a 20-year-old and the type of love and feeling that we have that goes between us is not like what's common in our culture. you know. So I had a horn when I was six, but I, I couldn't play. But I was always conscious of the music and of the, the struggle, the social. It's the 60s. And my father and the musicians were trying to keep the music alive, and they were always playing for almost no people. And it was always Southern town places. And my father also was involved in education. He was always struggling to get kids to come in to teach the music. And I knew from the musicians, the feeling of them from birth, that it was something they felt was very important in the music. And the people in our neighborhood, even though they didn't like the music my father and them played, like in the barbershop, my daddy would win the arguments. And they say, man, you can't argue with no jazz musician. You know, they've been around the world, they know. So I dealt with the music more from a personal standpoint. We liked what was on the radio, R&B, James Brown, and then Sam and Dave, Motown. And even before Motown, kind of like what the music my father's sister liked was more like, you know, know, Sam and Dave, real deep kind of Southern soul. Tammy Terrell. Sam Cooke. Sam Cooke. That was like what we heard in that. And we're from New Orleans, so we have our New Fats Domino, the music that comes from our, our culture. But my father and them did not play that type of music. They played serious jazz, they were improvising real long, and my mother was always funny describing them. She said, I took, I took two of my girlfriends to your daddy's gig, and child, they played the first song was 20 minutes. And my, my friends were looking at me saying, girl, what in the world are they playing? <laughs> and then your daddy didn't say a word, and Alvin Batiste was a great clarinetist. He's passed away, but he could really play like a la Coltrane. And Alvin Batiste played another long solo, and he didn't stop, and your daddy didn't say a word. And then he played a third song and they played, oh, Lord, after the third song, my friends looked at me and said, girl, you must love him. (laughs) 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 And, you know, so my daddy and them, they were they were they were going uphill with the music. And I I liked them because they had a a kind of feeling like they would hug each other. They knew people. People came from abroad. I, I met all the great jazz musicians, you know, Dizzy Gillespie, Art Blakey, Sarah Vaughan, Woody Herman. Another thing is I grew up with extreme racism and prejudice and ignorance in in Kenna, Louisiana and New Orleans, but the jazz musicians were not like that. They had a vibe. like We're not like the rest of this. If you grew up in an ignorant environment, it was very different. It was stark. You know, so that's kind of what what attracted me to music. Is jazz an escape from racism? It is a way to address it. Right. Jazz was a way for people, even in the earliest years, to come together and communicate with each other and work on a healing process that was genuine and honest. Jazz makes it so that you and I can talk, and I don't have to, I don't have to do all the stuff people have to do in our culture, even today, or cheesing and grinning and smiling over nothing, making up stuff, lying and bullshitting. We don't, I don't have to do that. Right. You know, my father was like a, a person that came from outer space or something and was put down in his environment. And uh, I saw a picture of him with a Clifford Brown album when he was a teenager. You know, just in his hand, I could just look at the picture. and I just saw him. Like I said, man, he didn't have nothing to do with what was going on. And he loved Charlie Parker, and he loved uh, Clifford Brown, and he loved the music. It's kind of intellectuals, a per- person, black person, kind of his generation with an intellectual inclination. They would lean toward jazz, and he liked uh, uh, the, the style of jazz that was not that popular, but that had all the greatest musicians in it, Monk and. Duke Ellington and, and Basie. And so he, he just was attracted to it. He, he did not have a, a, a large number of people. He started playing saxophone, R&B saxophone. He, he was walking the bar and playing like what people played in the mid-50s, but he loved the music, and he changed it to, to, to piano. I said, well, why you change the piano? He said, piano players eat when saxophone players starve. So he
1: he, he, he became, you know... He, he, and, and, and And did he... Encourage, discourage, or he just was neutral about your musical education? You know Did he push you? Man, I love my father so much,
2: like it's it's hard for me to even think about him or talk about him without getting full and crying. And now that my father is 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 old, he's sick. And I think to myself, even at this age, man, what am I gonna do when my father dies? Like I'm not gonna have a person to to play for. Like, I can't describe y'all the love I have for my father. Like, I I went with him on gigs. He was always alone. So I want to make it just about my experience. I sat in a car with a man, and we would drive 40, 45 minutes to some place he played, like in a a club. It'd be like three people in it. And he did it for years. And I would be, man, why are you doing this? You know, what, what is the value of this? Nobody cares about this. I joined a funk band when I was 13, and me and my brother could make, twice the money our father could make. Not together, both individually. And he was so much greater than us, we couldn't even tease him about that. And he was such a non-petty, he is such a non-petty, not just such an encouraging kind of just, so taught everybody, it wasn't just me. I don't care who it was. Anybody, Harry Connick, Donald Harrison, Terrence Blanchett, all the musicians came down. They'd be in my house studying with my father. He'd be in the community teaching people. And he was so for real. And he had such a deep kind of spirituality, and never complained. Live a hard life, struggled, didn't make money, was not known, just, but just uh, he was always in there for you. So, I, I, just one story I tell about my father: when I came to New York, I was coming to represent my father, you not know, practice, because my father wanted to come to New York. My father always gave me good advice. My father was the least prejudiced person in the '70s when everybody be Black Power and all of that. My father wasn't a Tom. He wasn't the type of person who was always white folks, all right, and all that. But he never, I saw him sit in rooms full of only black people and defend white people. And I would say, Man, why you always, he say, Man, you never attack people who are not there. You know, people don't understand about humanity. He had always had a larger sense. And I saw him live that. But I came to New York and I got a lot of publicity when I was young. I became really well known 18, 19, 20. It was unheard of for somebody actually trying to play. And I didn't expect that. So I came back to New Orleans, and and the older musicians were very, very hard on me. Well, I grew up in jazz, and I talked a lot. So, you know, I had opinions and views, and I expressed them. So it's not like I didn't deserve for them to (laughs) do how they did me. So I wasn't some innocent being treated. You earned it. You earned it. I earned it. I earned it. I, I had views and opinions. I was outspoken. I said what I had to say. They didn't like it. Okay. But I came back home, and I played a gig with my father. And my father made me stand, like, on the bandstand for a long time. And since I was a little boy, he always let me sit in. So man, I sat on the bench there and I was kind of started to kind of seethe, you know. so said, "Man, my daddy going even him. He's mad because I got some publicity, or they think I'm making more money than them." Got to the last song, my daddy called me up. Man, I was so mad. I walked up, I played a couple of choruses, and I was looking at him like, "Damn, not you too." And as we walked off the stage, my father put his arm around me and he said, "Man, I'm sorry. My rhythm section was so sad. I really didn't even want to call you up." And I, and I looked at him and I just had to laugh and like this is a man who was never small I don't care what the instance was he was never small he was a, a, a he he is a man of deep philosophy curiosity and honesty and when I left home it was I mean we were contentious in, in my home you know my mother I was always fighting with my mama really a lot over my daddy and when I was 16 me and my, me and my mother was fighting so much my daddy sat me in a car and he said hey man you have to work this out with your mama. I said, man, mama does this and this and that. No, man, she messing with you, man. Blah, 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 blah. But he said, man, you don't understand what I'm telling you. You need to work this out. Work it out, man. Gee, blah, blah, blah. He said, if mama leave, nobody pays these bills. We don't eat. Homework don't get done. Children don't get raised. And one of your brothers is autistic. If you leave, we have more money. but he was dead serious <laughs> he was not playing with me he was serious and he said work this out or i'm going to be visiting you at your crib your dad sounds like my dad yeah when did you know this is something this was the path you should run down you know i was i was not even the, the best musician in my family i am mean, i do I'm, I'm still not probably just technically my brother branford was always unbelievable learned stuff much quicker than me in music my little brother jason is like a savant with his memory and the stuff that he knows um, I don't. I was always good at, at most at things like in school. Good playing ball. Good hand-eye coordination. People didn't mess with me. Everybody liked me. I went everywhere, and I was always around adults and older people. People who struggled. Good talking with my mama about life, you know, because my mother was also very philosophical, and uh, always good with dealing with people. Like I was a kind of quarterback. Play, always good dealing with like disputes. People want to fight. Hey, man, we, we, you know, identifying situations. Um, I think I went into music when I was I was playing on the basketball team actually, and I and I said, man, I I started to like John Coltrane's music, and I, I he's not a drummer player, but I put trains on, and I my father was at a picture of him and James Black a New Orleans drummer and, and, and Coltrane, and that picture was like a shrine, man. That's us with train, you know, train. That's train. So I know they love train. And they would always talk about when Train came to one of their gigs, they were playing at a club called Vernon's. And Train came in the door, and Nat was the great saxophone player. Nat stood him up in the door when Nat was playing. And so I started listening to Train. And that, then I said, I wonder if I could learn how to play like these people who really can play. Because we we're playing funk and playing in pop bands, but I wanted to play like Clifford Brown or like Train or like how Miles was playing or like, you know, people who actually could play. so. I I didn't know whether I could learn how to play the music or not. Music is difficult to, to learn how to play. It was difficult at that time to figure out what the music was for my generation. I never felt like I'm good, like I, I really can play, because my brother could play. And in New Orleans, a lot of people could play. Well, Leroy Jones is a great trumpet player. We call him jazz. We played in a Fairview Baptist Church margin band. I was eight. We had a lot of trumpet players that could play. A lot of families could play. So you never felt that. And with my father and the musicians, they only dealt with quality. They didn't deal with awards, they didn't deal with none of that. My father really has no value system except, is this for real? So when I, I went to, I won, won my first Grammy Awards when I was 22, my father went to the ceremonies and he's not a person who's given any kind of you know stuff. When he sees something is fake, he just, he don't care. Like he, he's not gonna be a curmudge about it, but he just, okay, he, it's not about playing. So he sat through the ceremony loud, a bunch of non-playing. So we're in the room after I won, I'm talking to him, and he's looking at me, you know. Yeah, man, you won. He I said, yeah, you know, I won. I was trying to go out to a party or something. I'm getting ready to go out, him and my mama. He said, hey, man. He said, I'm glad you won this stuff. He said, that was the Grammy's, huh? I said, yeah. <laughs> and he said, you don't think this means you can play, do you? <laughs> so, of course, I didn't think it, especially in front of him, because he knew whether you could play or not. And I was actually in my 40s one time. I was playing something, and my daddy said, man, I heard you on the radio you ain't learned how to play on changes yet? <laughs> and he was serious. He was serious, and it was actually a tune where I was kind of shaky on the changes of the song. I said, man, I didn't even know the song I just please He said, man, you got, to,
1: you got to work on your ears, man. Wynton Marsalis, artistic director of jazz at Lincoln Center. Another greatest of his generation instrumentalist I've spoken to is violinist Itzhak Perlman. His pleasures these days are, oddly enough, mostly musical. Now that I'm old, there's no food after eight o'clock. You know, if if I pay for it, if I if oh, I you can't have, eat I, after eight o'clock. I clock. can eat it, but then in the middle of the night, oh, I give out. Give out. So, so uh, no, 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 no food. But you grew up. Uh, food uh, was everything. Food was everything. Yeah. Very, very guiding force in your life because you grew up kind of poor, correct? Very. The rest of my conversation with Itzhak Perlman is in our archives at Here'sTheThing.org. More with Wynton Marsalis in a moment. Hi, I'm Alec Baldwin. Don't you think it's cool to care? Carrie Yuma knows fast fashion's not sustainable and decided to spin that conscious mindset to create high quality low-impact sneakers. Their best-selling Aka style is the perfect, durable sneaker for dressing up or down, pairing a fresh look with broken-in level comfort. Aka is made with organic cotton canvas and ethically sourced rubber, and every pair comes with Karayuma's signature cork and Mamona oil insoles. Aka's already found its way into my summer shoe rotation. Find your pair and choose from a range of bold and beautiful colors. Right now, there's 15% off at cariuma.com
3: slash alec.
1: This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Wynton Marsalis grew up in a household teeming with the greatest jazz musicians of the era thanks to his pianist father. I, on the other hand, came to appreciate the genre through other means. For me, the portal for jazz was a movie. The movie Lenny with Dustin Hoffman where Dustin Hoffman played Lenny Bruce, and they just had the most beautiful soundtrack. And, they, and I remember sitting there watching the movie. They play It Never Entered My Mind. And I remember sitting there going, oh, my God, this is so beautiful, you know. Are there any movies that speak to you in the world you're in? Is there a movie you saw that you thought was a good movie about the world that you're in? You know, most of the
2: jazz movies I didn't like, really. You didn't? The, the, Why? What was missing? It's corny. You know, I, I mean, I knew the jazz musicians. So, you know, when you end up, it's like I do something about actors, you're going to be like, hmm, <laughs> that's, that's what you think it is, but it's not. But I love when people attempt to do it. So, right. You know, but I think that uh, I liked Elia Kazan's movies, you know, just the baby doll and a face in the crowd. Right. But Bird and movies like that, no. You know. They're Okay. Nah, because I just the music didn't have the power and the musicians were always made to seem less than what they are because they had a bird. Bird got high. okay. bird got high, but bird was not was not a child and he wasn't treated like a child by people who were around him. So it failed to convey Bird's magnetic power and the power of his genius. Every person you ever talked to who knew Bird said, man, everybody just Jerry Mulligan told me a story about Bird. He said, Bird was always late. He was a drug addict. He always had mustard on his tie. He was always, he said, so once we were sitting at Jazz at the Philharmonic, all the greatest saxophone players in the world. He says, you got Johnny Hodges, m- me. Uh, um, he just named the, the greatest saxophone players you ever heard of. He said, and everybody's saying, where's Bird? Oh, Bird is late. Bird is this. They're insulting Bird, talking about Bird. He said, so we're all warming up. It's like noise of eight horn players playing. So all of a sudden, Bird comes in late. Everybody's pretending like they don't see him. He said, Bird took his horn out and put put it together and played a scale. He went, Rrrr. he said, it was like the most perfect scale you ever heard in your life. Yeah. He said, everyone stopped at the same time and looked at Bird. And that was our critique of ourselves. Because there was not another one of us who could have made the rest of us do that. So I think it's hard to convey black Americans to convey the actual power and accuracy of jazz musicians. The depth of who they are and their humanity and what they... Understand and how deep it 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 is, and who was Thelonious Monk? It's too easy to talk about his hat. It's too easy to talk about. When I read the Time magazine article on Monk, it was all about eccentricities and when Miles left for concert. Or and the music is extremely difficult to play, and that's why we still keep trying. Over time, we've shifted and taken many of the fundamentals out to make it easier. But that's why when you listen to the records, as I tell my young students, I'm glad they're here with Phil and all them, because they're the most talented young people in the world. This is hard. When I give Anthony Solos to learn, he could already play when I heard him when he was 14. It's hard to play like he plays. He's a horn player. He's a trumpet player. Unbelievable. He can play. I'm not saying it. I tell him that if he's just in my house and I'm talking to him. It is difficult to play. You're going to be 50. It's hard. So you have to, these fundamentals, this stuff, these things, learn these things thoroughly. No one will know whether you can play these things. No one will care about that. You may be the only person you know who cares about whether you can play or not, who can evaluate your playing, develop an independent sense of integrity, and train yourself to death.
1: And, and yeah. yeah, you know, I do a play, I do a play one time and I said, what's the goal? What are you after? What are you, what are you doing? I mean, you know, beyond getting a paycheck. And I said, I want the perfect show. They said, what's the perfect show? I say, I say every line as written, in order. <laughs> and I say them the way that I think they should be said. I mean, I'm really concentrating. And I walk off stage at the end of the show, and there's a prop table, and I took a cigarette, and I lit a cigarette, and I looked at the stage manager, and I said, well, there you have it. <laughs> <laughs> I said, my perfect show. <laughs> I did it once, one show, and, but you're always aiming. And I and I said to what, what is his name again? The, the trumpet player? Anthony. Anthony. I went up to Anthony before, and I said, you know, I grew up in an age of you know Al Hurt and uh, 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 Armstrong. I said, guys, who were twi- you look like something that those guys would have had for lunch? You know what I mean? <laughs> where where does a person get that training? <laughs> this little bantam of a man, he, to get that wind? You know. I asked
2: him. But What's you, the secret? You know, when you look at the trumpet players, like Ray Nance was small, Miles was little. It's spiritual, like the spiritual weight of your sound, what you're projecting is a spiritual thing. It's like when you, when you see people when they've passed away, you notice how small they are. You always say, damn, they're really small. But when they're animated, you notice this. You're time, not holding your breath in the bathtub like a pearl diver. No, no. You go, no. oh. You got that minute long, long tone. I always tell them, it's an exercise we have. I say, you hold that long tone. It's like life. You hold that long tone till the end of your breath. So let's say you can hold a long tone for 45 seconds. When you hit 45 seconds, the end of your breath, now that's when the long tone starts. So if you get 15 seconds after that, you did a 15-second long tone. If you get 20 seconds, you did a 20-second long tone. Because the long tone, you challenge your breath when you don't have any left. And that's how you have to approach your integrity. And uh, that long tone is a microcosm of just life. You become
1: very successful. You become very successful when you're very young. And you've been at the top of this game for a long, long time now. And, uh, people talked about you as, you know, uh, the new jazz age and, and, and you were a part of, I don't think that you would allow anybody to say, even though it's probably partly true, that you were alone in this endeavor, but you were a part of the rebirth of jazz as a very popular music form in this country and around the world. Where would you say we are now with jazz? What's the state of jazz now?
2: Yeah, I think I was never really a part of it being popular or, or even, but I feel like I was a movement toward quality. And I think we still have a long way to go because our nation has gone in the opposite direction. And we've gone in the opposite direction with education. We've gone in the opposite direction with our mythology. We've gone in the opposite direction. So we have to double and triple down. And uh, that's also why I love to see my younger people. And uh, I feel I feel that part of what we try to do here at Jazz Lincoln Center and, and what you do with the Philharmonic, whatever, you know, there's so many people around the country working in the arts and teaching and doing all the things they do. It's, true, it's a qualitative thing. You teach a class, you're talking to younger people, or you just talk to somebody outside. Pass it on. You pass it on, pass and it you, on. you're invariably talking with them about quality. Check this out, study this, try to be, do this,
1: you're going to find this. And that was always my proposition. Let's start to talk about this. And you obviously become famous, and everybody knows you who you are, and your brother as well. How did this start? A lady from visitor services at
2: Lincoln Center named Alina Bloomgarden called me. This was in 1986. She said, uh, can you, can you, can you, do some concerts at at, uh, at Lincoln Center in August?" I said, "Well, how many concerts?" She said, three. She said, well, "No, we can't pay you." <laughs> I said, "But at that time, I was doing 200 and." I don't know like, 20 concerts a year so I had three concerts no problem you know I just need you to program and book some people and this, there, yeah no problem you know I'll book the people something for jazz and the halls, great I mean I didn't I didn't know what it was so we booked concert women in jazz was one and then Darth Ann Kirk was a, a partner of ours from uh, WBGO it was all very local, you know. We just all knew each other. We were talking. Oh, can you? Can we call so and so? Musicians we knew. I called different people. We had a Bud Powell, Bird. We did different. I did. We played in the hall in Alice. It was over in Alice Tully Hall, and that was 1987. It was okay. The next year, I, I said, "Well, I wonder if we could do Duke Ellington's music." You know, I like this big band music. We never played it, so I said, well, "Let's call this guy." We called him, and we said, "Man, can we?" Uh, Could we call Norris Turney? We just started naming old, old Ellingtonians. Most of I thought they had passed on. And every time I named somebody, he said, oh, we could could call them, we could call them. Then I was 26 years old, 27. Damn, I walked in the room next year. Man, there's there's Norris Turney, Britt Woodman, Clark Terry, Jimmy Hamilton. I mean, I I, I was just looking, man, we're going to play with these people who played on all these unbelievable records from 1955 to... Man, we sat down to play. We didn't know how to play their music at all. And they start cussing us out. And, you know, (laughs) the main thing they were saying, y'all play too loud, you know. And then we got questionable reviews about why we were playing Duke Ellington's music. Wasn't the plank. Then when I noticed, okay, these group of people, kind of jazz critics they're our enemies. So if they say you shouldn't play Duke Ellington's music, let's do two nights next year. (laughs) Next year, we did two nights of Duke Ellington. Then we started to do Duke Ellington's music. And then a guy named Gordon Davis uh, approached me. He said he wanted to form a committee around jazz. And I sat in the first meeting. I didn't know anything about this, raising money and talking to people in jazz, Lincoln Center. And and, uh, I just knew this was going to be some free concerts I had to play. So we sat in the meeting and it was interesting. Okay, these are people from the community who are going to help us build a program around jazz. And they said, we need you to come up with the program said, OK, I will just take the same thing that I'm doing on the road because I was then I had already man, I was going to five or six schools a day. Then I would just call schools and say, I'm a musician. Do you need me to come? be, we don't want that. And I had already had 10 years of experience. Yeah, it was rough. I was just on the road roughing it, calling people, going to schools, teaching their kids because I saw my father do it basically. Then we started to put it in place. Man, I looked up Jack Rudin is is a, a developer. I'm talking to him about like what it was like to fight in World War II or politics in New York City or what the internal things is. And and, and we're talking about stuff I, I didn't talk about other people. All of a sudden, Ed Bradley is on the board. Man, we're talking about this and that. And such and such. And such. I'm at Erdogan. We we're talking and we're arguing about this. And then we, I start to go through the board members. These people are going to give money and time to jazz. Man, people only take stuff from jazz. Beverly Sills goes on a call with me to raise some money and she, she says, I brought this guy to talk about jazz. He says, I don't like jazz. And she asked the man for a million dollars. I thought she was crazy. And he said, I'll give you the million dollars to get out of my office. <laughs> and I mean, the whole thing was like, uh, then of course I talked to Dizzy Gillespie. I said, man, we're trying to build this program. We got a chance to do this because Dizzy was always one of the smartest people you ever talked to. If you could get him to actually tell you something, and he knew it was serious, you could not have a higher level of understanding than Dizzy Gillespie. Okay, so then he wasn't joking or nothing. I said, uh, you know, big band is not the form of music I grew up in. I said, Jazz Lincoln Center, we're trying to do this and that. He said, one should not consider it an achievement to lose one's orchestral music. And jazz, we always considered our orchestral music to be lower. So it's part of the kind of brainwashing that takes place. And I thought, well, you you played in small bands. He said, if I could have kept my big band together, I would have never disbanded. It was a struggle. He said, develop that big band. So on his word, really, I said, okay, I'll give up what I'm doing and do this. And then we all started to work together. So the kind of defining thing for me in my life was the quality of people I had a chance to work with putting Jazz at Lincoln Center together.
1: And then when did this become the vision? This floor of this building and and a big nut you got to raise. I mean, let's face it. Jazz at Lincoln Center is not some little club somewhere on on Ventura Boulevard. right? And it's
2: been attacked for not being that. Right. So many times we, all of us, would take the attack of us wanting to keep us in the ghetto and and ghettoize us and make us accept less and be proud to accept it and define us by the less. So this is the most expensive piece of steel ever designed that leans this glass wall back to get acoustics. We heard there was a a room in the Canary Islands that was made of glass, so we studied that room. And the back room rose is based on an Italian opera house. You go to these Italian cities, and you play in these opera houses, local opera houses. They're that oval shape. That shape works. That's perfect. We're gonna have that shape, and our club is 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 just a like a, like a clubs you have in the Mediterranean with kind of sound and floor and, and wood. So we started to d- develop our understanding of how these spaces would work. The level of dedication was unbelievable, and we even the electricians we ran out of money and they. I had to have a meeting with Town Hey, man, we ran out of money. And the guy was, was, was messing with me. He said, you ran out of money? Well, this is New York, buddy. You know, you're not going to be able to open. I don't know what to tell you. We need, our, we need our, our our damn money. I said, man, you know, you want me to just invent some money? So we, he looked at me. We're standing right over here in the building. He said, He said, look, man, I live down the street from John Coltrane's house on Long Island. We're going to finish this.
1: They finished it. So it's many things like that, New York things. Yeah. And the last thing I want to cover with you is about uh, education and about uh, the future. When you talked about calling up schools and wanted to give it away and so forth, uh, you went to Juilliard. Have you taught? Did you teach jazz at Juilliard? Yeah. I mean, I I run the jazz program. At Juilliard? At at
2: Juilliard. Right. You know, I went there in 79 and 80, and I, I also had a rough time there. Why? He has a brother. And, um, you know, it was rough. It's, it's just a, a culturally, I'm from New Orleans. I was always like how I was, you know, like I am right now. I was like that. And I had a run-in with a conductor. The first performance we played in the Riders' Spring. Man, every time I played, the guy stopped the orchestra and said, first trumpet, first trumpet, first trumpet. That's a great part, too, the writer's Spring. You get to just bounce high notes off the wall. So he got to where I was just... Every time it stopped the first trumpet play. I played high, beam, I was playing these high parts, and the orchestra start shuffles when they like how you play something. So after a while, the orchestra started to kind of go on my side. They were like shuffling. The guy just, so I, said, I went to see the assistant uh, dean. His name was Brunelli. I said, Brunelli, I, I will not need you to take me off of this piece, man. This guy's like, I can't, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to have to whip it behind. Because I can't, I'm not from, the, I can't deal with this. He's, every time he he's and he's saying, I'm i a musical and all this stuff. And Brunelli looked at me. He's an older guy, also a World War II veteran. He said, Marcellus, I hear you're from New Orleans. I said, yeah. He said, you know, I always wanted to get down there. How's that gumbo? I said, it's good, man. He said. And <laughs> I got up and went back to rehearsal. <laughs> okay, he was telling me something, and what he had to tell me is, "Man, you're here. You know, this is what this is. Like, play your horn. That's what this is." So, okay, I'm not talking to any guy. I'm not doing anything. Where you from? You're from New Orleans. You can't handle a conductor like him. <laughs> Come on, baby, let's let's get to it. And that, you know, there was there was no jazz there and then I, I kind of got into it with my teacher oh, oh once again about racism you know it's always kind of if I have to be true but he was Italian I loved him William Vacchiano the deepest lesson I was ever taught in my life was from this this man and we he was like a guard to trumpet players he played the New York Philharmonic from the 30s to the 80s and we started to talk about racism he told me some kids took his backpack because he was Italian I said man let me start telling you stories about what people will do you You know, so I told him three or four good choice stories from Kent, Louisiana, circa 1969, 71. He was like, damn. So every week we would go back to this material. And then I, you know, then I kind of dropped off of school. I joined up, Blake and the Jazz Messages. But later, two or three years later, I called him, Vacino, because I still loved him. He used to always tell me I was the best black student he had. That also made me mad. I said, look, man, don't tell me I'm your best black student. I'm not here to be your black student. And, you know, just generations clashing because I was I called everybody man now I understand for him that was disrespectful to call him man but I was I didn't even know I used the word man all the time
1: I call my Uh, wife man (laughs) she hates it she's like I'm
2: not a man (laughs) you know you get into that habit so I went to his house out in Queens and uh man his house was dark you know and he he invited me in and I sat down I told him I wanted to work on my transposition and stuff he was like you don't need to learn anything about transposition he said uh he said my wife is My wife is at the end of this room, and she's been an invalid for a long time, he said. And my son died in an accident. We had a a contentious kind of thing. He said, when my wife dies, I'm going to be all alone. So he's probably in his mid-80s at that time. And he said, you're going to be known. You can play. He said, you're not going to struggle with that. He said, but your inner life, he said, if your inner life is unhappy, you are unhappy. Take care of your inner life, and that was it. He said, "That's your lesson." And you know, he offered me a drink. I didn't drink at that time. I was always in bars and stuff. I, I, I didn't, and I had alcoholism like in my family. And nah, nah, but he offered me a drink of scotch. I said, "Okay, man," and I pretended like I was drinking it. And then I left. So, but there have been times in my life when I would want to choke, or kill, maim one of my kids or something, and uh. I would, his words would come back to me. So I, that's what I took away from my Juilliard experience. And uh, with my students, I try to. I don't see them as much as I want to see them. But for me, with them, it's more personal, like Phil. Uh, I see them anyway. I don't, I don't just see them in school. I tell them, y'all are going to be out of school. I'm going to see you. You're going to be 30. I'm going to be people I study with. They're dead. I'm still here. And I try to teach them a, a way of life, this jazz. And when I, when I see them, I love them. I hug them, they know it. It's no question. I'm not saying it because I'm in front of a bunch of people. Anthony Hervey comes to my house to give a lesson. I try to teach him what all the love my daddy taught people with. Thank you. Thank,
1: thank you, thank you so very much. much. Thank you.
2: Thank you, so thank you. Thank you
1: The incomparable Winton Marsalis. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing.
0: Okay, fine, I'll fess up. All the new summer stuff I got, it's on sale at Kohl's. And the deals are so good. Like our Sonoma Goods for Life patio furniture, it was 30% off. Got 30% off backyard games, too. And even picked up grilling tools for 20% off. Best part? I saved an extra 20% and got it in an hour with free store pickup. So now we're all set for summer, and I'm pretty sure we've got a cookout planned every weekend. Select Style's 20% offer ends June 27th. Some exclusions apply. See store or kohls.com for details.
1: Hello, I'm Ron Burgundy, and I've got a new season of my podcast. I'll be joined by my co-host, Carolina Barlow. I'll be discussing important topics from QAnon to TikTok, and Carolina Barlow will try and stop me from telling the truth.
0: No, that's, that's not true.
1: You know what they say, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. Anyway, if you like hearing about things that really matter in this world, like raccoons and sex cults, then listen to the Ron Burgundy Podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Click it or ticket. it. Brought to you by NHTSA.